Good morning, Valley Church. It's a joy to be able to be with you this morning. And even though you as a church body continue to be dislocated from each other physically, and even though I am nearly 12,000 miles away as I preach to you here in Singapore, one thing remains unchanged, and that is our identity as the body of Christ. And so we come together this morning virtually to do the things that God has called us to do, to, to love God, to love his word. And we pray that that will empower us and go out and to love our neighbors as ourselves. If you'll turn with me now to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. In Psalm 38, we find David shortly after he has come face to face with his sin. And unlike Psalm 51, where it's explicitly to, connected to his sin with Bathsheba, we don't know the particular surrounding circumstances. And, and I think that this actually helps to make this psalm more relevant to anyone at any time for any sin. And that's the beauty of the psalms. They give a voice to our emotions, our praise, our fears, our tears. Tim Keller notes that traditional religion, on the one hand, uh, teaches us to ignore our emotions, uh, to not give weight to them. And then on the other side, secular society says that your emotions are sovereign. Uh, that's who you are, and there's nothing you can do about it. And Keller goes on to say that the Psalms give us a gospel third way of dealing with your feelings. And the Psalms do not say to deny or to agree with your feelings, but to pray your feelings. Pray your deepest emotions. Bring them before God and process them. And the verses that we have just heard read, what we see is a raw, primal expression of emotion that, frankly, if we saw or heard this, or when David's friends saw this, we would feel quite awkward. You know, David, I know that you're sorry for your sin, but is this really necessary? And the answer is yes. David gives a beautiful yet painful picture of how true grief over sin paves the way for true joy in a relationship with God. Because Psalm 38 wasn't just something for back then. Psalm 38 is the way that people feel about their sin when they're born again. Friends, how do you respond when you are confronted about your sin? Whether by God, privately, in your time, in the Word, or maybe by another person. How we respond is a clear indication of what is controlling our hearts. You see, if your heart is controlled by what you want other people to think about you, then when you're confronted by sin, you're going to do everything that you can to, to manage the consequences, to control the perception about who you are. And one of the ways that we often do this is by demonstrating great anguish over sin, but not our own. Other people's sin. Now, now David, he took sin seriously. He felt great anguish when he thought it was somebody else's sin. Remember when Nathan comes to David? explains about the rich man who stole the lamb and David responds with this violent justice. That man must die. And then Nathan comes and he says, but David, it's you. 
We can become enraged at someone else's sin, someone else's incompetence, others' injustice. But what does it say that we more often qualify and justify our sins while we can be painstaking articulate about someone else's? Maybe your heart is controlled just by this ease and simplicity. And so when confrontation comes, this exposure of sin, it threatens the equilibrium of your life. And so you listen to the confrontation, uh, but all the while you're tuning it out lest it actually sink deep into your heart. And then you run back to your momentary saviors. Because Netflix and social media and isolation and ice cream, they save you from having to deal with reality in the moment. And the thing is, we run to what we believe is going to save us. And the irony is, we don't realize that it's only contributing more to our pain. It's like uh, a man that is dying of thirst looking at a glass full of salt water. It looks so good, but it's actually going to kill you. Isaiah says it this way. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? But what if, in contrast to these, what if our hearts were controlled by who God is and what God thinks of us? Then we begin to see every confrontation Every exposure of sin as a severe mercy. Yes, it is hard. But it's exactly what I need to continue being changed by God. David was a man committed to being changed by God no matter what it cost. And Psalm 38 is the expression of a heart that is filled with grief over a relationship lost with God. In this psalm, we see three evidences of a change-producing grief in the heart of a Christian. They're humbled before God, they have a hunger for God, and hope in God. Humbled before God, a hunger for God, and a hope in God. The first thing we notice is humility before God, and there are several evidences of humility in the psalm. The first is listening. David listens to the accusations against him. He, he doesn't just take everything. Uh, some of it is wrong and inaccurate, he says in, in verse 19. But this psalm shows someone who has listened in full to what is being said about him. Now, there's two ways that God generally speaks to us about our sin. The first is directly from God, through his word. And that's why it's so important that we be in the word, in prayer, ready with patience to listen to the Spirit's voice. And if we're not doing those things on a regular basis, then our, our ears are going to grow dull to God's leading. But just as important is how God uses other people to confront us for our sin. When someone confronts you on a sin, do you interrupt them? Do you self-justify you ignore them? you run out? Proverbs 19.20 says, Listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, 
you will be counted among the wise. Now, in no way do I want to diminish the role of the Spirit convicting you in a personal time with God. However, it's possible for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are humble because we accept the private confrontation of God in His Word, yet we reject the God-ordained confrontation of others. And while the first is essential, few things are going to test the, the metal of our humility as when God employs other sinful human beings as the agents of his merciful confrontation. And humility isn't just willing to listen to what has been said. Humility is, is willing to acknowledge, to face the reality of what you have done. And everything in us wants to self-justify. We're wired to defend ourselves, to rise up and say, yes, I may have done this, but you. You know, I got angry, but it's because of what she said. And David, he goes in the opposite direction. He belabors the seriousness of his sin. He says, yes, I've done this. Sometimes I found that it's easy to acknowledge my sin but only so that I can quickly flip the accusation back, back on the other person. It's like by immediately saying, I'm sorry, with this sweeping yet unspecific apology, everything's done. Discussion's over. Oh, except for the fact that now I want to confront you, and I'm going to be very specific about what you did. That's not acknowledging our sin. True acknowledgement faces the reality. And you see in verses 11 and 12, David talks about those who are both close to him, the ones that he has most likely sinned against and offended, uh, but also his enemies who rejoiced in his sin. But to neither of them did he offer a defensive response. He says, it's my sin, my iniquities, my foolishness. David knew he had sinned and he acknowledged it. And Spurgeon says to abstain from self-defense is often most difficult and frequently most wise. So there's two things that we acknowledge. First is acknowledging a specific sin. Psalm 51, 1 Samuel 12, many of the other psalms, David sets a pattern of not skirting around what he, done, he had done. He says, this is it. I have done this. Friends, when you are confronted about your sin and you've actually done it, name it. Call it what it is. Don't say, well, I'm struggling you know, with the internet when you've actually been looking at inappropriate images. Don't say, well, I was a bit emotional when it's clear that you've been sinfully angry. Don't say, well, I forgot when in your heart you know that you are being lazy. And one of the hardest things for us to do is just simply name, I did this. And yet how important this acknowledgement is. But it's not just naming a specific sin, it's acknowledging the depth of remaining sin in our hearts. We shudder to think that so much of evil should life festering deep within our nature. In verse 5, David says, I, 
I have this foolishness, and that word literally means I've been a downright fool. Left to myself, this is who I am. This is the way that I would go. And while at first this seems you know, utterly devastating and hopeless, this honesty about what still is in us is necessary. We can't make true progress forward in our relationship with God if we're not willing to face the reality of remaining sin in our hearts. Further evidence of humility before God and before others is transparency. Look with me at verse 9. David says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. And while similar to acknowledging our sin, transparency calls us to something painfully deeper. You see, there's a temptation to confess our sin, but only partially. We feel good about ourselves that we've admitted wrong, so long as you don't go too deep into my heart. Yet if we truly believe that God is all-knowing, then it's foolish to attempt to hide anything. God's word is alive. It is active. God is all-knowing. His word is able to pierce to the deepest recesses of our hearts. No creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But this leaves the question, how transparent do I need to be with another human? With my wife, with my friend, with my pastor? There's three things to remember. Number one, very simply, tell the truth. Paul says that we are to put away falsehood and to speak the truth with our neighbor because we are members one of another. Now, not everyone needs to know everything. Transparency is not about airing your dirty laundry on social media. But there should be few, if any, struggles in your life that someone isn't aware of because you can't handle this alone. No one can. And that's why God created us to live in community as a part of a body. The second thing is this. What is my purpose in concealing one portion of my sin while revealing another? Partial confession, when you know there is more, is actually more dangerous because in confessing only partially, what happens is we salve our consciences to think that I've done what's right, what's respectable. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friends, no one benefits when you alter the truth. So a simple question to ask yourself is, am I telling the entire truth right now? The number three, am I telling myself the truth? Sometimes the person that we need to be the most honest with is ourselves. We can deceive ourselves easier than anyone else. And if we can't be honest with ourselves, then we're incapable of being honest with others. Solomon says the integrity of the upright guides them. They're the same person in here as they are with sharing their struggles with another person. See, so many people they stay tied to that last 
20% of their struggles that no one ever knows about because they only offer up the 80% of the truth. But we can only experience 100% freedom, 100% healing, 100% of the abundant life that Jesus promises when, when we offer only 80% of the truth. 80% of the truth is always going to leave us 20% short of healing. I love this quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He says, why is it that it is often easier for us to confess our sins to God than to a brother? God is holy and sinless. He is a just judge of evil, the enemy of all disobedience. But a brother is as sinful as we are. He knows from his own experience the dark night of secret sin. Why should we not find it easier to go to a brother than to the holy God? But if we do find it Harder, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves and also granting ourselves absolution. Who can give us the certainty that in the confession and the forgiveness of our sins, we are not dealing with ourselves but with the living God? God gives us this certainty through our brother. Our brother breaks the circle of deception. A man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. This raw, transparent acknowledgement of our sin, it produces a humiliation, a devastation. Notice the descriptive language that David uses. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh, no health in my bones. My wounds stink and fester, utterly convulsed with pain. All day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. I am feeble, crushed. I moan like an angry lion because of the anguish in my heart. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. The light of my eyes has gone from me. Is David ever doing it here? No. David gives a beautiful yet painful picture of how true grief over sin paves the way for true joy in a relationship with God. The, the temptation is to, to fight or flight, anything to avoid these feelings of shame and indignity. But for David, the exposing of his sin, as painful, as humiliating as it was, the rejection, the isolation, none of that compared with the devastation of realizing that his sin had separated him from his God. So while unspeakably painful, was actually welcome. This is where we see that humiliation is a glimpse of God's mercy. God disciplines and instructs us because He loves us. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, David knew that this humiliation, this devastation, wasn't the final word. David writes in Psalm 30, he says, God's anger is for a moment, 
but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping over this current sin struggle will tarry for the night. Joy. Joy comes with the morning. C.S. Lewis describes it in this way. He says, suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. For the repentant heart, no consequence is too large to embrace so long as I get God. Humility, it brings us low. It empties us. There's no more defenses, no more facades, and that emptiness sparks within us a ravishing hunger for God. We see this primarily in what David asked for. David asked for forgiveness. He didn't just moan about his sin. He confessed it. Verse 18, he says, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. All David wanted was to be right with God again, to be reconciled with God. And so he begs for God's presence. Look at verse 21. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh my God, be not far from me. And he wasn't begging God that he wouldn't ever do that sin again, necessarily. He was begging God for God, for his presence Because he knew that if God was with him, then that would help him with every future temptation. See, David longed to be filled up with God. For most of us in the developed world, it's hard for us to imagine true hunger. Uh, The only hunger we feel is when maybe we choose to, to fast. But we always know that there's food in the pantry, there's McDonald's down the road whenever we're ready to end that fast. I wonder for many if it's not equally hard to imagine a genuine hunger for God. This holy unsatisfaction until I can get more of God himself and he can get more of me. That's what David is showing us here. The sin that he had chosen offered to to numb his soul, to give a high to his ego, a pat on the back from the world. But in the end, he was so unsatisfied. John Piper puts it this way. He says, if we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. I love that old gospel song. It's a question we all need to answer. Are you turning your eyes upon Jesus? Daily in his word. Daily in community. Daily laying aside sin that clings so closely. Daily looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Are you turning your eyes upon Jesus so that as a result, you're filled with him? The things of this world then grow strangely dim. There's a final evidence of change producing grief, and that is hope in God. 
biblical hope is a confidence that God will do what he has promised to do. But it's also imperative for us to realize that hope is not something that we just get. The psalmists wrestle and they struggle. They fight to maintain maintain hope. But why is that? Because so many things, whether it's the sin within you, the circumstances outside of you, they cause you to question whether God is good. They cause you to question whether God is able to do what he has promised to do. And there's two specific things that David does here in his fight for hope that if we will take them to heart, I believe will change the way that we view sin, will change the way that we view God. First, David endured through his struggle. Notice that at the end of this psalm, there is no resolution. David has asked for God to answer, but he hasn't yet. He's asked for God to be near, but he doesn't yet feel it. Yet in spite of what he feels, David moves forward because of what he knows about God. You see, David realized that this battle with sin wasn't just going to be over now that he had humbled himself and was pursuing after God. Consequences remain. Verse 19, he says that even now my foes remain vigorous and mighty. Spurgeon says this. He says, we can stop praying and fighting when Satan stops tempting. But David waited. He endured with a confidence that God would never forsake him. Happy is the one who endures testing and temptations, James writes. Because when he has proven to be genuine, genuine, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. David could endure because of what he believed. David trusted God. I don't want to say that David's trust didn't waver. Many of the Psalms indicate a deep, hard questioning in David's heart. And our questions and doubts about God and his dealings, he can handle those when we take them to him. Here in this psalm, David says in verse 2, It is your arrows, God, that have sunk into me. What is God doing shooting arrows at his own children? I think what we need to understand is that God doesn't aim his arrows at us, but rather at our sin. And when we choose to dwell so closely with sin, we're going to feel the tear of our flesh as those divine teachers pierce deeply within our souls. They are from God. They are a severe mercy. And David trusted that God's arrows were perfectly placed for him. David also trusted that God would perfectly place his arrows in others' lives at just the right time. And that's why here in Psalm 38, you don't see David concerned about others' sin. David is confident that God will lovingly discipline others just as he is doing it to himself. Where we see David's hope most vividly is in verses 15 and 22. David says, God will answer. God will help. God will save. See, David had a confidence that God would rebuke him, not in his anger, 
David had an expectation that God would discipline him for his sin, not in his divine justice, but with mercy. David had every expectation that God would not forsake him, but he would draw near to him. Now, why could David have this confidence? Because that anger, that wrath, that forsaking was meant for someone else. See, David didn't know the name Jesus, but David knew the promises. And he understood that the only way he had any chance of making it out of this situation alive was if someone else was going to take the heat. Friends, Jesus came in. He took God's anger. He took God's wrath. His own father did forsake him, not for his sin, but for the very sin for which you stand now, humiliated and humble. It's for our sake that God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we in Jesus might become the righteousness of God. And the only hope you have is to say, I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash away my crimson stains, white in his blood most precious, till not a spot remains. In the Gospels, Jesus gives us this beautiful picture of what change-producing grief looks like. And he does it in prodigal son. After all of his degenerate living, and this man finds himself literally starving, literally at the bottom. And oh, what a kindness of God it was, because it was there that he came to himself. He was humble. He says, I have sinned. I have done wrong. And yet there was a glimpse of hope, confidence that his father would still receive him. And so what does he do? He says he rose. He went to his father. And how did he find the father? It's actually not as he expected. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Friends, we look forward to that day when we are freed from sinning, when we see God's lovely face full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how we'll sing his sovereign grace. So we say, come, Lord, don't, don't wait any longer. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know, I have this confidence, this hope, that your power will keep me till I'm home with you at last. Three questions for us. Number one, where do you waver most when confronted by sin? Is it with transparency, defensiveness, self-righteousness, fight or flight, running to your momentary saviors? Now that you've had a chance to think about it for a second, what would those closest to you say about where you waver most? Take this opportunity to allow God's word to guide you to see what a humble response should look like. Question number two. What are you most hungry for? If someone wanted to know what your family loves to eat, all they have to do is look at your grocery receipts. 
So what does your spiritual grocery receipt look like? You have a few bucks spent on Jesus and then the rest is a whole lot of other things. Your hunger for God, his presence, it is inseparably linked to your view of sin, your view of others, your view of self. Ask God today to increase your hunger for him. And then number three, did God bring to mind a known hidden sin in your heart? Some of you know. You've been blaming others for your sin. You were hiding your sin. Today, did you feel that conviction from God's word? Did you feel that longing to be restored to the God who sees you, who is ready to have compassion on you? Take the first steps of humility. Talk to God. Talk to someone. Find forgiveness. Find healing. Find joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is relevant for us right now. And we pray that it would have lasting impact on our hearts today as we hear and as we respond. We pray this in Jesus' name.